This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Chapter 13, Paul is beginning to wind down his letter to the church in Corinth. We'll look at these verses uh, tonight, verses 1 through 10, and Lord willing, the final verses next week. Hear the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come... I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. And this evening we pray for your help as we study. We pray, Father, that you would sanctify us by your truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rebellion against Paul's authority in the church in Corinth was, in effect, rebellion against God himself. Because God had not only called Paul and appointed him to be an apostle, but God had placed Paul in a unique relationship with his church as the one who founded the church, as the one who uh, led many of these people to Christ or came to Christ through his preaching. And humanly speaking, he was uh, certainly uh, the authority over this church, uh, authority not that of a uh, tyrant, but that of a father. And his paternal affection and regard and concern for the Corinthian believers came through in this letter. As we've studied it, we've seen that time and again. But Paul also knew that if they did not respond to his admonitions, 
that it did not bode well with the Corinthian church for its future. Uh, Paul certainly would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament and what happened in Israel when they rebelled against the authority that God had placed over them and therefore against the authority of God himself. One such uh, particularly dramatic instance of that is found in Numbers chapter 16 with Korah and uh, uh, Dathan and Abiram and their rebellion against Moses. You're familiar, of course, with um, the fact that Israel began to grumble and complain almost as soon as they had come out of Egypt over their uh, fears of not having enough water, over their fear of not having enough food to eat. Well... In uh, Numbers chapter 16, you can turn there if you like, um, we find a, uh, a rebellion that took place among the people of God against Moses' leadership, uh, specifically named in verse 1 are Korah and uh, Dathan and uh, Abiram, sons of Eliab, and others. And in verse 2, some 250 chiefs from the congregation, well-known men, leaders among the people, joined these uh, men in a rebellion against Moses. Uh, Verse 3, we read, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Who are you? We're all as good as you are. What do you mean lording your authority over us like this? It's in effect what they were saying. Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And he gives instructions. He says, Take censers, you, Korah, all your company, put fire in them and offer incense. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. And in verse 11, he's quite uh, explicit. Therefore, it is against the Lord, not Moses, but it's against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. And what is Aaron that you grumble against him? So they're effectively trying to take control, if not over all of Israel, at least certainly the priesthood. And so Moses says, we'll set up a test and you bring your censers and uh, burn incense and we'll see whom the Lord accepts. Well, in verse 20, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment and they intercede on behalf of the congregation. And uh, so the Lord says, well, get away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And they did. You can almost see the people beginning to shrink back from them uh, in, in, in response to the Lord's instruction. Verse 28, Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they're visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belong to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And no sooner does he say that than the ground begins to split open. And uh, Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their families and their households all fall down into the ground. 
And then we read in verse 35, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. And so a very graphic demonstration of the Lord's judgment against those who rebelled against this authority that he had pointed. And I I wonder, uh, I can't help but think that sometimes maybe Paul's thoughts went back to that. Because uh, while he certainly, as a Jewish believer, would have a very high regard for Moses and recognize Moses as a leader, I'm sure Paul would have thought of far above himself. Yet in many ways, Paul was in a similar situation. As he was dealing with these people who come into the church in Corinth and some within the congregation who were questioning, challenging, and resisting Paul's authority. And so as Paul writes, he's not writing to satisfy his own ego. He's not writing to secure his own place. He's certainly not writing to them just for the sheer perverse joy of having power over people. He is genuinely regard uh, or concerned for the well-being of the church in Corinth. And so he writes to warn them uh, here in these, these final paragraphs of his letter. And his warnings remind us of three important practices, particularly that he mentions here, uh, for the church. Because as a church, we ourselves don't want to fall into these kinds of things, be guilty of these kinds of things, where the Lord actually does judge. And if not opening the ground and swallowing up a church or part thereof, nevertheless, uh, just as surely destroying or removing uh, a church or congregation that is uh, disobedient and rebellious against his authority, the Lord's authority. And so Paul warns them by mentioning three practices that are very important for the Corinthians, important for us. And the first has to do with church discipline. Look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Now, he's already made reference to visiting them, wanting to visit them in a way that is positive and joyful and happy, not in a way that's difficult and sensitive and hard, although he's willing to make that kind of visit. And just as soon as he said, this is my third time, he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's he talking about? What does he mean by that? Well, he's quoting from Deuteronomy and the standard that was set when charges were brought that it should be corroborated not just by one witness, but two or three. In other words, more than one person who is able to substantiate charges that are being made. And Paul is actually talking about them in his visit to them in terms of discipline. And he's saying there will be nothing arbitrary. This isn't a matter of Paul as an apostle simply declaring how it's going to be or declaring who's under discipline or who's not. Uh, He is rather saying that everything will be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says in verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. A church discipline is a very important aspect of a healthy church. Uh, unfortunately, it can, it's always a very difficult thing. Uh, just as disciplining our own children can be a difficult thing. Sometimes hard to sort out exactly what the real story is or to really know what's going on. Uh, and yet it's necessary. Uh, the Bible gives us a, a very clear procedure 
uh, in general terms for church discipline uh, in Matthew 18, where it says if someone sins against you, you go to the person. If you know that there's some sin in their lives, something particular, go to the person and speak to them. And if they listen, you have won your brother or your sister. Uh, If they won't, then you go back with uh, two or three others who are able to... uh, to, uh, to emphasize uh, the, uh, the, the seriousness of the sin, uh, able to show that it is a very important matter, not something to be taken lightly, again, appealing for the person to repent. Uh, a sin in private, addressed like that, is a private matter. Uh, and if they repent, uh, so far, so good. If they will not, then it has to be taken to the church. In other words, it becomes something of an official matter for the church to address. Now, that doesn't have to happen in two or three days. That can be over an extended period of time, perhaps. Uh, Maybe not as long a period of time. But it is a graduated step-by-step process of addressing a fellow brother or sister in Christ where there is some sin in their life. And and Jesus lays that out. That's the kind of thing that Paul is speaking about here when he says in verse 2, I've warned those. And he says, you know, when I was absent, I warned them when I was present. Uh, Paul doesn't uh, exercise this kind of discipline just on first blush. This has been ongoing. He's given them time to repent. He's addressed it. Um, But that's the, the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. And certainly in our BCO, it goes into more detail basically on applying what we, what we learn in, uh, in Matthew chapter 18. But that's almost not done at all in the church today. And unfortunately, when churches do make an effort at church discipline, sometimes it's not done by following that biblical, uh, process or in PCA context, the, the details that are laid out in the book of church order. Uh, those are very useful, though, and are, and are a good way to make sure that the response is measured, that it's appropriate, and that it's done deliberately and carefully. Um, but in fact, a church that will not discipline is not showing love to its members. Uh, it's not showing love to the person who is caught up in some sin. And the other purposes of discipline are to, uh, one, maintain the honor of Christ in the church, and two, to... Uh, to serve as a, a safeguard and warning to the rest of the church that such behavior, whatever it might be, is sin and would not be tolerated, as well as the effort to reclaim the person who has fallen into sin. Uh, just as parents discipline their children out of love for them when discipline is properly done uh, with the goal of correcting sinful behavior and sinful attitudes, uh, so that's how it should be done. In the church, and that's what Paul is talking about here. But in the context of church discipline, it's also more than just a procedure. There is spiritual power present in that. Paul is saying here, and referring to that here, when he says in, in uh, the end of verse two, "If I come again, I will not spare them." Verse three, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Um, You know, Jesus in Matthew 18 speaks of um, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Well, we often 
use that in the, in the sense of praying, and that, that is true. Uh, even where just one believer is praying, Christ is present uh, with that believer to hear his prayers or her prayers. Certainly where two or three are gathered, Christ is present. But in Matthew 18, the context of Christ's presence is in the context of discipline. Uh, the, the scriptures speak of the keys to the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, the power of the apostles, and I believe having no apostles now in duly uh, appointed leadership of a church, um, that the church serves as a gateway to salvation. Not by itself, obviously, but through the gospel as someone believes in Christ, and yet that gospel comes and is manifested in the church. And so Jesus is saying there that when this process of discipline takes place, Jesus is there with them. He is present. It's not merely church leaders acting, but they're acting on behalf of Christ. They're acting as his appointed leaders in the church, and he is present uh, and is behind and ultimately validating biblical discipline properly done. And that's what Paul is saying here. You need to know, if you've been present in this study, there's been this whole question of weakness in Paul. Oh, Paul's weak. You know, he has... Very little in the way of stage presence. He's not a great speaker, and so forth and so on. Paul says that's really beside the point. Uh, You seek proof Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you. He's powerful. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We are weak in him. To despise weakness in Paul is to despise weakness in Christ. His going to the cross is humbling himself. And yet, just as there is power... In the risen Christ, there is power in Paul. And that same power is involved in Paul and involved in this disciplinary process. So the first warning that Paul gives is that he's coming to see them. But not just that he's coming to see them. But if he comes to see them and needs to, he will follow a process of discipline against those who are stirring up trouble and who are resisting not just Paul's authority, but Christ's authority in the church. Again, discipline can be a difficult Thing. I remember um, when I was serving, serving on the shepherding committee of uh, the North Georgia Presbytery, back before we divided into three, we were involved with a church in our presbytery. Had a case where a man in church, who actually was a deacon, was basically trying to take over and run the church. And it was harming the church. And the church had a small session. They had never done anything in the way of any kind of discipline before. And as a committee, we said, look, these guys, or this guy, is disturbing the purity and peace of the church. You have got to, at this point, you've got to bring a charge against him of doing that. Um, This was a leader in the town and wanted to be a leader, the leader of the church. Uh, That was a scary thing. And as a shepherding committee, we couldn't do that. We gave them some guidance. We told them we were behind them. We were praying for them. But ultimately, they were the elders of the church, and they had to stand this guy down. And because of his behavior, because he had been addressed and been warned, they had to bring a charge against him. Uh, they did. And he, uh, he left the church. And his parting comment was, the PCA sure has changed a lot. Well, if it did, it's changed for the better. Because uh, that is precisely what was needed. And it, uh, I think, not only removed that difficulty from the church, but I think the people of that church had a whole new respect 
for the elders of that church who were willing to lead in that way. Unfortunately, he left. The process was never followed through, but it did accomplish the result of not only protecting the church, but showing this man that he was completely out of line and that would not be tolerated. So church discipline uh, is an important practice. Uh, Actually, discipline takes place all the time. We're disciplined by the word of God and at an informal level. Uh, we talk about when we come to the Lord's table, Paul saying we discipline ourselves. We should always be self-disciplining, repenting of sin as scripture exposes it. Uh, but there are times when we may be caught in some sin and there is a need for another believer or other believers or maybe ultimately for the elders of the church in a more official way to pursue discipline. It is a mark of a healthy church when Biblical discipline is lovingly and properly applied. Not easy, but uh, nevertheless necessary. The second uh, warning that Paul gives that reminds us, or another important practice that's involved that Paul warns about here, is that of self-examination. And that really follows and and in a way precedes discipline. Paul says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You see, church discipline carried to its conclusion, if it doesn't result in repentance and a change, results in excommunication. What is excommunication? It's saying we hate you, don't like you, want you out of here. No, it's saying because you refuse to repent, because you seem to love your sin so much, as a church we cannot but conclude that you are not regenerate, you are not Christ, and so we return you to the world. Pray for you. You're an object of evangelism. We love you in Christ, want to see you come to Christ. But if you persist in sin, how can you belong to Christ? Well... Certainly before we get to that point, uh, as Paul says, we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And certainly with the kind of opposition Paul has been facing, that's a reasonable question. Are you even a Christian? That you can so oppose the due authority God has placed over the church. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, this same Christ who is crucified in weakness? Unless, Paul says, you fail the test. Well, what's the test? How do we know? Well, I suggest uh, that we find a, uh, a good sample test. Um, in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, where... Uh, Paul is, or Peter, rather, is speaking, he says in verse 5... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Peter cites his qualities as interesting, the overlap that there is there with the fruit of the Spirit. But he's saying to make your calling and election sure by examining yourself, by making sure that you're growing and and, and demonstrating these various virtues in your life. And unfortunately, as you look at that list, uh, it seems that some of those are lacking in the the Corinthian church. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, and so forth. Well, any church and any believer should be going through this process regularly of self-examination. Not, not a morbid introspection, but just saying what in my life is in conformity with God's word? What in my life is not? What are those things that are sin? What are those things that I need to repent of? To ask for God's grace and seek Christ's resurrection power and putting to death. Maybe there are things that I need help from a brother or sister in holding me accountable. Uh, or maybe even their feedback. Do you see this or do you not see this in me? And so it's those kinds of things. This is, by the way, not graded on a curve, uh, not where you get an A or a B and you've done pretty well. It's pass-fail. Either Christ is in you and the evidence is there, or he is not in you and you are none of Christ and you're still in your sins. There's, there's no pretty good middle ground. There's just pass or fail. It's either an A or an F. And nothing in between. So after talking about this discipline, Paul comes back to them and says, examine yourselves, test yourselves, look at yourselves. Don't you realize Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. So important practices for the church Paul warns about. One is church discipline. Two is to continually be engaged in self-examination and evaluation in order to grow in Christ And then third is that of prayer. Uh, Paul loves this church. This church has a big place in his heart. And in these final verses, twice he mentions his prayer for them, and particularly what he prays. Uh, He prays that they would be obedient. Look at verse 7. But we, after raising the possibility uh, uh, of their own uh, self-examination. He says in verse 6, I hope you will find that we have not failed the test. That They would see these things in Paul and the other apostles. Verse 7, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. Again, Paul is kind of in a roundabout way saying, this is not about me. This is not about my protecting myself and my turf and my territory. And seeing myself as, myself as competing with these false teachers. This is about you, the Corinthians, praying that you would not do wrong. Whatever they might think of Paul, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad when we're weak. You were strong. And then he mentions his other specific prayer request. Your restoration is what we pray for. Again, this isn't a power play. Paul is not concerned with winning. He's concerned for their spiritual well-being. He prays that they would not do wrong. He prays that they would be restored. Restored to what they were before. Restored in their relationship with Paul. Restored in being a kind of church that honors Christ. Rather than one that causes not only Paul, but Christ, pain. Your restoration 
is what we pray for. And by the way, um, anytime someone is under some formal discipline, um, you pray for restoration. Uh, just as you would your child. Uh, if you have to discipline your child in some way, you're praying for real repentance. You're praying they might be restored to obedience, to righteousness, that they would not do wrong. Uh, so it is here. And Paul says, your restoration is what we pray for. And in verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. So Paul says, I'm writing to you because I, when I come, I don't want that to be this kind of visit. Uh, that they would respond to what he wrote. So that when he comes, he would meet with the church that's not hostile, not resistant, but warm, appreciative, uh, and in the grace of Christ, and growing in the grace of Christ. And recognizing the nature of the gospel, which is not a proud triumphalism, but a humble acknowledgement of our own weakness. And yet Christ's strength in us. So he prays they would be obedient. He prays they would be restored. Now we're looking at Paul, what Paul writes, in a very specific and historic context. And I've kind of taken those and generalized them uh, so that they would apply to any church in any context. The need for the practice of church discipline. The need for self-examination among believers and a church as a whole. I mean, that's something we could do and look at ourselves as a church and say, where are we weak? Where are we not being what we ought to be? And then third, uh, certainly that of prayer. Prayer for ourselves, prayer for other members in the church, prayer for the church as a whole, for obedience, to be the kind of church that Christ calls us to be. Paul gives a warning that took place with a specific church 2,000 years ago. Does it apply today? Are these the kinds of things that our church needs today and other churches around Atlanta and around the world? Uh, I like uh, Kent Hughes's um, uh, words as he, he writes about this passage. He says, Today, the warning stands over the church and especially those who have transmitted the present cultural values into the church. So that the church is little more than a Christianized version of modern culture. The warning stands where leadership is built on the cult of personality, where image is everything. The warning looms where worship is showtime, where preaching is entertainment, where God's word is muzzled and the pulpit panders to itching ears. The warning echoes where we are the focus of worship. Our feelings, our comfort, our health, our wealth, where super apostles are preferred over Paul. Paul's warnings apply in the present day. You better believe that they do. It may take different forms, but the difficulties of the Corinthian church are still seen in the church today. Yes, Paul's warnings matter then and now. And so we engage in these practices that Paul has described, not only to escape the judgment of Christ, and then not even primarily to escape the judgment of Christ. But we discipline ourselves, we examine ourselves, we pray for ourselves, so that we are the kind of Christians, so that we are the kind of church that Christ wants us to be. A church that he can bless, a church that he can use. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this passage. And Father, I pray, uh, even Lord, as Paul demonstrates the kind of leadership that he does, that I and our elders would demonstrate this same kind of leadership. But Father, we also pray for our congregation. Uh, Lord, how uh, subtle so much of this can be. And Lord, many of these same values that uh, were in the culture of Corinth that had made their way in the church uh, are in our culture today. And so easily begin to uh, slip into the culture of the church, into our own thinking. Lord, open our eyes to those things uh, as we examine ourselves to see where we really are, just conforming to our own culture, maybe not without even recognizing it. But Father, we pray that we would indeed be uh, countercultural in all the right ways, the biblical ways. That we would be a faithful church, Lord, certainly not perfect in this world, but we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be at work in our midst to make us what you would have us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.